0: Welcome to Simply PMR, a Mayo Clinic Talks production. The simple solution for physical medicine and rehabilitation healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physiatrist in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic. Musculoskeletal ultrasound usage has significantly increased in our profession. Many of our colleagues use this technology for diagnostic and procedural practices, such as performing injections. However, there's a growing group of practitioners who are using MSK ultrasound to perform minimally invasive surgical interventions. Today, we are gonna talk about some of these procedures, the utility, the safety, and the research to support them. We have Dr. John Finnoff, a colleague in sports medicine at the Mayo Clinic Square in minneapolis welcome john
1: thank you jeff i'm really happy to be here today
0: so can you tell me what type of surgical procedures that we're using ultrasound to assist with
1: yeah jeff it's it's kind of cool we have a team of professionals including sports medicine docs in the area of physiatry, who use a lot of ultrasound do a lot of ultrasound guided procedures and then our orthopedic surgical colleagues and and neurosurgeons. And essentially, we've kind of sat down and talked as a group about what procedures are common and what procedures might be able to be performed with ultrasound guidance. And uh, as we've done that, we've started to gradually investigate a variety of these types of procedures, which include carpal tunnel releases, trigger finger releases, dequerive veins releases, cubital tunnel releases, adductor tenotomies uh, and releases, IT band releases, and and fasciotomies, to name a few.
0: So what kind of instruments are you using to to cut the tissue?
1: Well, it's it's a lot of different types of instruments. So uh, anything from taking a standard needle, an 18-gauge spinal needle, And when you have the stylet in a a spinal needle, the stylet at the end faces the same direction as the bevel. And if you pull the stylet out and you rotate it 180 degrees and reinsert it in so that it's upside down, essentially, then the end of the stylet is in the opposite direction of the bevel of the needle. And so it creates creates a little V-shaped cutting tip. So you can guide a needle down to a structure that you want to cut, and then insert the stylet right before you get to that spot um, and then advance this little V-shaped cutting tip through that piece of tissue and it will cut it. There's also cutting wire or thread. Um, We're using little V-shaped meniscotomes that are 3 millimeters at the end, but about 15 centimeters long. And uh, at the end, they have essentially a little um, V-shaped cleft that has a scalpel tip. And so you can run it through tissue almost like using scissors on wrapping paper and it'll cut right through the tissue.
0: Fascinating. Can you do it in one pass or do you usually have to make multiple passes through the tissue to cut it?
1: It really depends on which technique you're using. So if you're using the cutting wire or cutting thread, you essentially loop the the tissue that you're interested in cutting with that thread and when you pull on either end of the thread, it'll cut right to that tissue, and it's, it's a single pass. With the fasciotomy, I use the meniscotome, and that's also usually one pass. Now, occasionally, uh, with the needle that we use with the inverted tip when we put in the stylet upside down, that's smaller. The 18-gauge needle, it's it's pretty small. And so depending on the size of the tissue that you're trying to cut, like an iliopsoas tendon, I didn't mention that before, but we're doing iliopsoas tendon releases. But you have to do multiple passes through that because it's much larger than the needle tip.
0: Wow. So you kind of mentioned a lot of different things. What makes someone a candidate for one of these procedures?
1: Well, so first off, I should say that pretty much all of these are in the translational phase. Um, where some are are being investigated to prove that they're safe in a cadaveric model, and some are actually being used in clinical practice, but they're at these various phases of translation. When we come up with an idea, we first test them out in a cadaver to refine our technique, make sure we're cutting the things we want to, and make sure that we're not cutting the things we don't want to, like nerves and blood vessels. We want to make sure that they're safe in a cadaveric model first. Then we... um, will start considering translating it into clinical practice in the right patients. And, and the right patients for us, when you're using an experimental procedure, is they've tried all of the standard treatment options, and they're considering a surgical intervention, and either there's not a good surgical intervention for that, uh, so they don't, they don't have good evidence that the surgical intervention is, is uh, efficacious or has low risk, or they just um, they just don't want to have the surgery for whatever reason, or can't have the surgery for whatever reason. So those are the people that will typically choose to try these new procedures. And then as we study them and determine uh, are they as good as the standard surgical procedure, are there faster recoveries and so on, then then they start becoming more of a first line agent after somebody's failed the non operative measures.
0: Well, I would think they'd be. Um much less post-procedure pain without the skin incision.
1: So you know what, Jeff, that is a great question, and I think this is one of the coolest things about these procedures. You are essentially, they get a needle hole. You're using local anesthetic. The procedure is done in the clinic, and so they have less pain during the procedure. They have less pain after the procedure because less tissue is cut you can see the tissues that you're going to cut before you cut them, and so you have less risk of cutting something you don't intend to because when you're using a scalpel, I mean, you cut through the skin and you can't see through the skin until you've cut it, so you don't know what you're going to cut below that area. So with ultrasound, you see, then cut. With standard surgery, you cut, and then you look at what you just cut. And so I, you know, in my mind, that means that ultrasound has the potential, at least, of being uh, – lower risk. You have less blood loss. You can make sure that there are no vessels uh, in, in the trajectory of whatever you're using as your cutting device or isn't looped in your cutting thread. You don't have to pay the facility fee or the anesthesiology fee uh, because you're doing it in an outpatient setting, so it's much less expensive. And because you cut less tissue and they just get a band-aid afterwards, no stitches or anything, they go back to work or play much, much faster. So for all of these reasons, I think this is gonna have a huge impact on healthcare and really revolutionize a lot of the procedures that we're doing.
0: Ah, it sounds fascinating. Uh, your projection on how long it'll take to take this from the research phase to implementation. And what I mean is usually in medicine, you come up with a great idea, it doesn't happen for a few years. What's kind of the trajectory you're seeing right now for this, for minimally invasive ultrasound-assisted procedures?
1: Well, so from the time that we think of the idea and kind of test it out on a few cadavers first, before we do our true cadaveric study, you know, it's usually a month or two from idea to first trial. Then we do a larger cadaveric study, usually within the next two to three months. So I'd say that first initial phase is four to six months. And then uh, you have to have the right patient come along. So we're not necessarily advertising, hey, we developed this new procedure in a cadaver and we, we want to try it out on you. You know, it's much more of a the person has to have the right condition. They have to have gone through all the standard treatments. And then they need to choose this as an option, recognizing that it is experimental. And uh, so all of those things, it it may happen almost immediately because the right person is there, and it might take uh, a fair amount of time. Once you've done that first case, um, depending on how that goes, uh, then we're more apt to start talking to people about it earlier in their decision-making process, and so it kind of shifts in that treatment algorithm and moves up the line a little bit. And then after we've got a fairly good case series and we've established that this is safe and it's effective, then we can start doing uh, studies where we're looking at efficacy compared to standard surgical procedures with uh, cohort studies and then also looking at cost uh, effectiveness. And so I would say that the longer-term research with larger case series, uh, comparative studies, comparative effectiveness studies, and, and then also cost analysis Um, all of those take uh, years to do. But the actual translation into starting to do it in practice, that's a year or two.
0: You know, talking, working in the hand division, as I do, explaining the procedure like a carpal tunnel release done with a thread to one of our surgical colleagues sometimes can be difficult in the fact that they can't believe it can be done that way. Um, Are you finding some other professionals being somewhat resistant to this?
1: Yeah. You know, all politics are local, right? And um, I think that uh, depending on your environment, you may have extreme resistance because this could dramatically impact impact somebody's livelihood. So if they do carpal tunnel surgeries for a living and they've done a fellowship and they're a hand surgeon and this is really their bread and butter case, and somebody comes along and says, hey, I can do this better, faster, easier, cheaper, and people are going to go back to work sooner and they're happier, well, I'm not going to be real excited about that, and I may um, be very resistant to that transition because it's going to directly impact my practice, my ability to earn an income and, and make a living. So I think that is is, uh, is a big deal. You know, thankfully, at Mayo Clinic, we have incredibly – supportive surgical colleagues who have embraced many of these procedures and, and at least um, been willing to talk about them and uh, and work with us on the design and implementation. Um, but even within Mayo Clinic, there are some procedures that people are more excited about than, than others. And, and some of that's politics, but some of it also is just the risk associated with the procedure and needing uh, to garner more evidence before we're willing to translate them into clinical practice and, and uh, recommend it for our patients.
0: So do we have any literature out there on minimally invasive techniques?
1: Well, it's funny you should ask, Dr. Bro, because we do. Uh, so it depends on which um, procedures you're interested in. I've published multiple different articles, uh, including the original cadaveric studies and some of the case reports and now case series that are going out on this But there are uh, numerous studies on a variety of different techniques that I'll just briefly mention. So, for instance, one of our colleagues here at Mayo Clinic, Jay Smith, um, he has developed a really interesting tool where he places this little device underneath the transverse carpal ligament in the wrist, which is where you do carpal tunnel surgery. And it has a couple of balloons that blow up on the side of this device that push the nerve and the blood vessels away. And so it makes it really safe. And this little hook knife pops up, and it it cuts through the ligament. And it's a 2-millimeter incision with that. And he has over 1,000 cases in 850 patients, 187 of which were done bilaterally, so in both hands which most people aren't doing carpal tunnel surgeries in both hands at the same time because it really disables you. But because this procedure does not significantly disable you, you can use your hands for normal daily activities. You can do both hands at the same time. Uh, And these have been done by 27 different physicians representing multiple different specialties, including PM&R, sports medicine, radiology, plastics, orthopedics. And it takes an average of 8 to 15 minutes to do, and the patient is allowed to resume uh, activities as tolerated the same day. So definitely that has uh, literature behind it, and they are collecting data and are, gonna pro- are, are going to um, write up uh, a fairly large case here, because they're now up in the 1,500 to 2,000 range. The Go Brothers, who uh, I know you're very familiar with, they developed the cutting thread. Um, it, they uh, have published two case series, um, one with 159 hands in 116 patients. Uh, they had no major complications in their patients. Um, and uh, so that was in the Journal of Hand Surgery. So definitely, and there are a number of different studies that have been published on the um, Trigger finger releases with a fairly large case series, um, just to name a few. So yes, there there is literature on this. It is evolving literature. Many of these studies, uh, many of these studies have been case series. But that being said, a lot of surgical literature are case series, and then comparing those case series to Prior research and other case series that have been done, and, and comparing techniques in that manner.
0: Excellent. I want to hear more about the Iliosois release or the adductor release. How how do you do that?
1: Yeah. So the adductor release, we um, and that's actually we published our uh, cadaveric study on on that recently, and it looks what we did is is we used a 22 gauge needle to guide a cutting thread um, around the adductor longus tendon right near its insertion on the pubic tubercle, uh, and then use that cutting thread to just uh, cut through it. So you have two little needle holes that you put a Band-Aid on. Um, And you leave the adductor, so where the adductor longus comes off the pubic tubercle in your pelvis Some of it is tendon, and some of it is muscle, and then just deep to that is the adductor brevis, and deep to that is the adductor magnus. Mm -hmm. So the one that becomes tendinopathic and that hurts is the adductor longus tendon. The rest of it is not involved in that uh, pathology. So if you just cut those fibers where the tendinopathy is, then it reduces the tension across that area, and so it immediately reduces their pain. Uh, so we demonstrated that we could do it in a cadaver, and, and we've done this. Uh, this is one of the ones that's in translation, so we've done it on one patient. We have three-month outcome. We're going to publish that. But he, he walked out of the procedure, and within uh, you know a week he was running. And there's a guy that hadn't been able to run for several years because of this pain and had been through, through just extensive treatment. So you know, really, really cool things that you can do with these procedures.
0: And the iliopsoas?
1: And the iliopsoas, we're using uh, currently that flipped stylet technique. And so essentially where the iliopsoas and, – and this is – for those of you who are listening, I mean, think about how many people have total hip replace, flip replacements and they have an acetabular component that's just a little bit proud and that iliopsoas tendon is rubbing on that acetabular component. It's just driving them crazy. It hurts. It hurts, hurts, hurts. And so – You know, right now the surgery, they go in and they cut that iliopsoas tendon and they have a pretty decent size incision. They have to dissect down to it and stuff. So we're just guiding an 18-gauge needle right down to where that iliopsoas tendon would be rubbing across that cup or in somebody who doesn't have a total hip arthroplasty where it crosses over the anterior aspect of the acetabulum. And then right when you get to that spot, you insert the stylet in an upside-down position so you have the V-shaped cutting tip. And you just go back and forth through that iliopsoas tendon, and you leave the muscle intact, but you cut the tendon right there where it's rubbing, and you immediately release it. Um, And it's, it's really very impressive and simple to do, and you can do it in the clinic.
0: Wow, fascinating. So if I'm a PNR doc with average ultrasound skills, where do I learn to do these techniques?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question, Jeff, because right now there there isn't a great place to learn how to do these. And frankly, these procedures are still in the translational phase of, of research. So should there be broad uh, adoption of most of these procedures right now? Probably not. You know, right now it's more of these are really amazing uh, things that we believe are going to translate uh, transform medicine, but we need to prove that they're safe and efficacious and ensure that when somebody, when we start training people in this, that they have adequate skills to be able to perform it. Because certainly, you know, the risk associated with a, a, an ultrasound guided surgery is far higher than with an injection. And so that's going to require a higher level of skill And and also uh, the willingness to accept the potential complications uh, that come with any surgical procedure.
0: So, this sounds like a fascinating area, and I'm sure we haven't even delved into all the potential areas that this could be utilized in.
1: Oh, we're just scratching the surface, Jeff.
0: Today, we've been joined by Dr. John Finnoff, a sports medicine physiatrist at the Mayo Clinic Square in Minneapolis. Thanks for joining us, John.
1: It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you.
0: This is Jeff Bro, Physiatrist in PM&R at Mayo Clinic, saying thank you for your time. Until we talk again, remember the words of one of our founders, Dr. William Mayo, rehabilitation is to be the master word in medicine. Thanks for joining us.